Welcome to the reading of the Quad City Times for Friday, February 23rd, 2024. All material heard on IRIS is intended solely for the use of people with print disabilities. Your readers today are John McPartland and Jim Hoffman. Here's our first story. EPA OKs higher ethanol blend. Year-round sales approved in Midwest states. Drivers in eight Midwestern states will be able to fuel up with higher blend of ethanol throughout the year under a final rule announced Thursday by the Environmental Protection Agency. The biofuels industry and farmers group, with support of Midwest governors, sought the end of a summertime ban on sales of gasoline blended with 15% ethanol for years. The higher blend has been prohibited because of concerns it could worsen smog during warm weather. The move reflects the importance of ethanol to agriculture. The fuel additive consumes roughly 40% of the nation's corn crop, so higher sales of ethanol could mean greater profits for corn farmers. The rule, the rule which takes effect April 2025, will apply in Illinois, Iowa, Minnesota, Missouri, Nebraska, Ohio, South Dakota, and Wisconsin. Those states grow the bulk of the U.S. corn crop and are home to much of the nation's ethanol production. Iowa Governor Kim Reynolds said in the statement that the decision would lead to lower costs for consumers, but she criticized the EPA, EPA for making the change nearly two years after it was requested. Finally, our request is approved. However, the EPA's unjustified delays come at a cost for drivers and the environment. As governor of the nation's top ethanol-producing state, I'm pursuing a waiver to continue offering drivers the option to purchase lower-cost cleaning E15 in Iowa this summer. And I won't stop fighting for this year-round E15 until it's available nationwide. The EPA said it delayed implementation of the new rule because of concerns that there wasn't enough supply to meet demand this summer. Ethanol producers welcomed the change but criticized the EPA for this delay. While we are pleased to see EPA has finally approved year-round E15 in these eight states, we are extremely disappointed by the agency's needless decision to delay implementation until 2025. The Renewable Fuels Association, a trade group, said in a statement, it's helpful to finally have some certainty about 2025 and beyond, but what happens this summer? Most gasoline sold across this country is blended with 10% ethanol, though 15% blends are becoming incre increasingly common, especially in the Midwest. E15 summer sales still will not be allowed in most of the country during summer through agricultural groups are pushing for a nationwide policy change. The biofuels industry and politicians for both parties have portrayed ethanol as a product that helps farmers, reduces prices at the pump, and lessens greenhouse gas releases because the fuel burns more cleanly than straight gasoline. However, environmentalists and others have said increased ethanol production can increase carbon releases because it results in more corn production, leading to increased use of fertilizer and greater releases of nitrate. Synthetic and natural fertilizers are a leading source of water pollution. The EPA has approved sales of E15 for cars and trucks manufactured after the year 2000. Grow Energy, another bio 
Energy Trade Association estimates the higher blend will cost consumers 15 cents a gallon less than 10% ethanol. Petroleum refiners have opposed the Midwest-specific rules, saying that a special blend in one region would increase cost and can lead to tighter fuel supplies. The American Petroleum Institute, a trade group, says the national standard was needed. <clears throat> we are concerned this piecemeal approach could weaken the resist resiliency of the nation's fuel supply chain, Will Hutmans and Vice President at the group said in a statement. We continue to call on Congress to pass the Bipartisan Nationwide Consumer and Fuel Retailer Choice Act, which would bring much-needed consistency to the marketplace by allowing for the year-round sale of E15 nationwide, preserving access to E10, and eliminating the need for region or state-specific waiver petitions. Uh, New uh, article coming from the University of Iowa, Quad City Learning Centers, uh, Eyed for Closure. In an effort to save money and better allocate resources, uh, the University of Iowa is planning uh, to close several off-campus centers, including Birchwood um, Learning Center in Davenport and Scott Community Learning Center in um, Bettendorf. The University of Iowa requests to close the centers along with the Tippy College of Business Cedar Rapids Learning Center on downtown 2nd Avenue Southeast will go before the Board of Regents for approval next week. Working professional students are overwhelmingly selecting online courses for their flexibility according to the request to close the Birchwood Center, which houses space for the professional Master of Business Administration and Master of Science in Business Analytics programs. Offering both in-person and online has become an inefficient use of resources. University of Iowa officials gave the same reasons for wanting to close the Scott Community College Center and the Tippy Center in Cedar Rapids, where last year 101 students enrolled in the professional MBA program and 37 enrolled in the MSBA program. The university did not immediately say how many of the 101 Cedar Rapids professional MBA students in 2023, the highest enrollment since at least 2019, were taking courses in person and how many were online only. It also did not immediately share specifics about the 37 students enrolled in the Cedar Rapids-based MSBA program. Current MBA and MSBA students at the TCOB um, Cedar Rapids Learning Center will be able to complete coursework through online offerings at the pace of their choosing and with more flexibility, according to the University of Iowa request, which will take effect at the end of the current semester if approved by the board. There will be cost savings from no longer leasing space in Cedar Rapids, University of Iowa officials reported. Additionally, faculty resources can be focused on delivering the online program versus teaching courses at multiple uh, in-person sites as well as online courses.
The Birchwood Learning Center closure, like the one in Cedar Rapids, will affect University of Iowa professional MBA and MSBA in-person offerings in that the location was used to offer those courses on the eastern side of the state. But unlike in Cedar Rapids, that location has seen enrollment drop from a total of 87 in 2020 to 13 total in 2022 and zero in 2023, according to the university's request documents. Given the number of students applying to the Birchwood Center was so low that it would not be feasible to offer courses at that site beginning in summer 2022, students applying to Birchwood were offered the option of moving to an online learning center. The university's planned closure of its Scott Community College Learning Center will affect Master of Social Work students, having opened about 50 years ago to serve the educational needs of students in the region. At that time, University of Iowa was the only Master of Social Work program serving Iowa, and the demand for qualified social workers necessitated the opening of this educational center, according to the request for closure. The program originally was organized through the Quad Cities Graduate Study Center, a consortium of 10 universities which eventually closed, prompting the University of Iowa to move its social work center to the Scott Community College. Enrollment at Scott Community was affected by two changes, closure of Marycrest University's Bachelor in Social Work program, a feeder for the University of Iowa Master's program at Scott, and the debut of St. Ambrose University's Master of Social Work degree, upping competition for students and practicum sites, according to the University of Iowa. In its last recruitment push for the Scott Community Program in spring 2021, the University of Iowa netted 10 applicants, all of whom were admitted but eight took the online program. No students have been physically enrolled at the Scott Community College Learning Center since 2019. There has been a decrease in applications to the Learning Center, while at the same time the program is expanding the online Masters of Social Work program due to increased demand, according to the university. It is anticipated prospects in the region of Scott Community College will apply to the online program. The University of Iowa Master of Social Work program remains available at its main Iowa City campus with 60 enrolled, the John, Mary, John and Mary Papa John Education Learning Center in Des Moines with 79 enrolled, and through the University of Iowa online program with 44 enrolled. University of Iowa officials did not immediately disclose how much it has been paying to lease the spaces and how much the program closures could save, but they recorded, uh, reported faculty resources would be better spent and students would be better served. This should remove barriers as it increases accessibility and convenience. No impact is expected on the Iowa workforce. Combine Steakhouse closes doors in East Moline. 
There is one less place to eat in East Moline. Wednesday evening, company officials with the Combine Steakhouse, 910 Bend Boulevard, announced the steakhouse would be closing for good that same day. The closure is a result of the high demand for event space at the Bend Event Center, the company said. The closure will allow staff to expand the event space, according to an emailed statement. <laughs> the same statement was posted on the company's Facebook page, where commenters asked how to redeem gift cards. A response from the page said it to contact officials at the Bend Event Center for instructions on how to redeem the balance. The center can be reached at 309-623-4488 or info at thebendeventcenter.com. The Combine Grill, which was located in Davenport and under the same ownership, closed suddenly in May of 2023. That location had opened in early 2022. The East Moline location opened in 2019. Thanks, John. And uh, turning to some local news, uh, suspect arrested after apartment fire. Uh, this uh, written by Grace Kennecutt of the Quad City Times. A suspect has been arrested for intentionally starting a fire at a Moline apartment complex, according to the Moline Fire Department. At about 9 p.m. Wednesday, February 21st, the fire department responded to a fire alarm activation at the Moline Enterprise Lofts at 1871 River Drive. The complex is a 69-unit apartment building. Upon arrival, firefighters observed visual alarms and water coming from the upper floors of the building, according to the fire department's news release. The fire was contained in it to its area of origin and had been extinguished by the sprinkler system prior to the fire department's arrival. The Fire Department's Fire Prevention and Investigation Bureau initiated an investigation classifying the fire as intentional. After the firefighters put out the fire, authorities found a couch that appeared to have been intentionally set on fire, according to the Moline Police Department. During the ensuing investigation, they identified James Byers, 61, of East Moline, as a possible suspect for the arson. Byers is in a relationship with the person living in the apartment where the fire was set, the police department said. Officers arrested him in East Moline. He faces charges of aggravated arson and residential arson, according to Rock Island County court records. Byers remained in the custody of the Rock Island County Jail Thursday pending a first appearance on the charges and a detention hearing, both scheduled for Friday, court records state. Moline Fire Department coordinated with other emergency responders, including the Moline and East Moline Police Department, Mid-American Energy, American Red Cross, and a water mitigation company to provide additional assistance. The various agencies facilitated relocation of all affected families and ensured immediate needs were met, the fire department press release stated. No injuries were reported among firefighters or civilians at the scene. 
Anyone with information regarding the incident is asked to contact Moline's uh, Fire Marshal Mitch Cunningham at 309-2266. No further details are available due to the ongoing investigation. Thanks, Jim. <clears throat> Next story we have is uh, by Olivia Allen. Um, EICC Mount Mercy Set Nursing Agreement. <clears throat> Eastern Iowa Community College and Mount Mercy University hope a new transfer agreement can help fill vital nursing workforce needs. Now, graduates of EICC's nursing program may be automatically admitted into Cedar Rapids-based Mount Mercy's RN-BSN program, giving students a smooth transition towards earning their bachelor's degree. <clears throat> I can't emphasize enough smooth, said Dr. Ling Chi Wee, EICC's interim chancellor. We know transfers are tough enough. This agreement allows students to maintain the impactful profession in patient care. At the same time, it also follows their career path, prospects, and earning potential. Mount Mercy and EICC officials made the announcement Thursday, gathering at Scott Community College's recently renovated Health Sciences Center. Learning is fundamentally about making and maintaining connections. And that's true on a lot of levels. As science students, it's making connections between your academic studies and your real lived experiences in the healthcare field, said Mount Mercy President Todd Olson. Today, it's all about making connections between two institutions that have been very well aligned values and missions. We said this partnership comes at a very critical time in the nursing profession. In Iowa, roughly 60% of medical facilities are struggling to fill their nursing positions, per the state's most recent nursing demand survey. Additionally, the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics anticipates a 6% growth in the registered nurse workforce over the next decade. We know Iowa needs professional nurses now more than ever, Olson said. There this is an urgent need and something we are compelled to address in the most creative way possible. Mount Mercy's RNBSN program is offered online with nine start dates throughout the year. With classes available in five and ten week blocks, students have the ability to pick a schedule that works best for them. This flexibility empowers students to balance patient care while meeting the urgent demand for skilled professionals all while advancing their education, said EICC's Dean of Health Programs, Don Bocher. Having an agreement like this in place allows students to say, oh, I can actually do this, BSN. This is actually available. It also helps with employers, she said, as many expect nurses to obtain their BSN eventually. One thing I really think is great about this agreement is students can actually start those conversations before they graduate, Bocher said. They can come in and get advising, talk through the decision, and even consider starting some coursework before they're truly done at EICC. It's really an amazing opportunity for them. This opportunity could open the door for several more, she said, and others. There are hundreds and thousands of opportunities for nursing students at RNB 
BSN Chair Madison Woods, getting a bachelor's degree only elevates those opportunities. A big focus in Mount Mercy's program is nursing leadership skills. You can demonstrate those skills every day at the bedside or moving into a management position of some sort. Lori Hogan, SCC's Associate Dean of Nursing, said students often ask her about post-RN opportunities. So it's very nice being able to tell them, you've got this easy transfer process in place and give them that information while they're still here. They are very excited about this agreement. Carly Good, a third semester nursing student at SCC, is already thinking about pursuing this option for her BSN. Mount Mercy is nice, the 21-year-old DeWitt native said. It's close to home, and I know they'll take all my credits, and I don't have to worry about stuff not being accepted. Good said her experience in SCC's nursing program has been positive, particularly the new Health Science Center opened up in October. It's been really cool. We have study rooms, offices. We have way more labs. We used to have just one small lab, she said. The patient simulators can talk, have heartbeats, and all that stuff. So it's very informative to us, and we didn't have that before. Now we really get to be hands-on and don't have to worry about being with real people for our first experience. Mount Mercy's MMU Plus program also gives RNBSN students the chance to take graduate level courses while earning their bachelor. Chancellor Wee and I have already discussed this partnership and collaborations are the future of higher education, Olson said. Today, we are really opening a new door together and I'm eager to welcome the motivated, capable students who will walk through the door in the month and years ahead. Thanks, John. Uh, this comes from Orion, uh, a news tracker article from Lisa Hammer. Food pantry backers attend Orion meeting. What we know, a design company was tasked with creating a plan for a new Orion Village Hall minus community center space. What's new? About 20 people attended Monday night's village board meeting to express their support for maintaining space for the Orion Food Pantry at any future village hall. Steve Wright of the <clears throat> pantry gave a synopsis of the organization's activities, saying 233 of the 334 families served in 2023, or approximately 69.7%, have Orion addresses and 25 of the 56 Orion District students receiving weekend backpack meals live in Orion. The pantry bought $21,519 worth of food from the Orion market in 2023 and $1,675 from Highland Pack, spending $27,704 on items for distribution. Total expenses were $29,645. Total donations, uh, in 2023 passed 38,000 and the organization ended the year with an $8,570 surplus. But one larger grant won't be continued this year and another is unknown. 
Pastor Ann Champion spoke in favor of non-church locations for the food pantry, noting going to a neutral location makes it a little easier for people to ask for help. Village President Jim Cooper termed it a misunderstanding that the village could be considering eliminating space for the food pantry. We have not made any kind of decision on that, he said. Trustee Mel Drucker, who had commented about Orion Village taxpayers bearing the burden of supporting a group that served the entire school district, said the food pantry had brought up a lot of good information. He went on to say he appreciated the information provided. That was very helpful, he said. Resident Scott Kirker suggested the board vote immediately on whether to reserve space for the food pantry at any future village hall, but he was reminded it was not on the agenda and no vote could be taken. <clears throat> so what's next? Bids for permanent fixes to the east and west water well house control panels are now due March 15th and the board could accept a bid at its March 18th meeting. Cooper noted the village received only one bid of $330,000 after an initial set of specifications was prepared. The original anticipated estimate was $225,000 to $250,000, so the bid was rejected. Britain, the firm that did the temporary control panel repairs, had given an estimate in the $130,000 range and another company offered a similar amount for a different set of specifications. So the village wanted to reduce specs. The city is expecting at least two more companies to bid on the work. Thanks, Jim. Next story we've got is Man Faces Robbery, Attempted Murder Charges. Less than seven months after being released, from an Iowa prison, a Davenport man on escape status from the Iowa Department of Correctional Work Release Centers has been arrested in connection with a robbery and shooting of a man late Sunday, police said. Rolando Deshaun Anderson Nelson II, 29, was taken into custody Tuesday night by Davenport police at the Walmart on West Kimberly Road. Police received a tip he was shopping at the store. Nelson allegedly walked away from the work release center on September 17, 2023, less than two months after he was released from prison. According to the arrest affidavits filed by Davenport Police Detective Eric Robinson, Robinson at 10.57 p.m. Sunday, police were sent to an apartment building at the 4300 block of North Ripley Street to investigate report of a robbery with shots fired. Officers located a victim who was taken to Genesis Medical Center, East Davenport, for treatment. Nelson had harmed himself with a 9mm pistol. He used the pistol to gain entry into the victim's apartment. Once inside the victim's apartment, Nelson struck him in the back of the head with a pistol, which created a large laceration, according to the affidavit. After the assault, Nelson shot the man and stole property from him. Nelson is facing one count of attempted murder, a Class B felony that carries a prison sentence of 25 years, 70% of which, or 17 and a half years, must be served before parole can be granted. He is also charged with first-degree robbery, also a Class B felony that carries a prison sentence for 25 years. However, 
Upon conviction, it will be up to the sentencing judge to determine a minimum mandatory sentence of 12 and a half years or 50% or 17 and a half years of 70%. Nelson is also charged with a Class B felony of first degree burglary, but there is no minimum mandatory sentence for the crime under Iowa law. Additionally, Nelson is charged with one count of each willfully injury causing serious injury and assault while participating in a felony, each a Class C felony that carries a prison sentence of 10 years. He is also charged with going armed with intent and felon in possession of a firearm, both Class D felonies that carry a prison sentence of five years. Also, he is charged with using a dangerous weapon in commission of a crime, an aggravated misdemeanor that carries a prison sentence of two years. During a first appearance on the charges Wednesday in Scott County District Court, Magistrate Stephen Wing scheduled a preliminary hearing in the case for March 1st. Nelson was released from prison and placed on work release on July 31st, 2023, according to the Iowa Department of Corrections. <clears throat> he was to be on a work release until March 2nd of 2024. However, he walked away from the work release center on September 17th, 2023. He had been in prison for a series of robberies he'd committed when he was a juvenile. During a sentencing hearing held November 11, 2011, District Court Judge John Tillene sentenced Nelson, Nelson to 25 years in prison with a 70% minimum on a charge of first-degree robbery. He also sentenced Nelson to a concurrent sentence of 10 years in prison on charge of second-degree robbery. Those robberies were committed when Nelson was 16, according to Scott County District Court electronic records. During the same hearing, Talene sentenced Nelson to a pair of concurrent 10-year prison terms for two counts of second-degree robbery that occurred in another case. Those robberies occurred when he was 15, according to court records. In 2014, the Iowa Supreme Court determined that mandatory minimum sentences for juveniles was unconstitutional unless certain factors were taken into consideration, including the age of the offender and the features of youthful behavior, the juvenile's home and family environment, the circumstances of the offense, the role of youthful features in its commission, the challenges for youthful offenders in navigating through the criminal process and the possibility for rehabilitation and the capacity for change. Nelson, who was incarcerated at Fort Madison, was granted a sentencing that was held June 29th of 2015. According to the ruling in the resentencing hearing issued by District Court Judge Stuart Whirling, Whirling's determined that 70% rule in Nelson's case was unconstitutional and that he did not have to serve the minimum of 17 and a half years on the first degree robbery conviction. Um, Nelson was being held Wednesday night without bond on a hold from the work release center, a $100,000 cash-only bond on charges that connected to the robbery and shooting, and a $1,000 cash-only bond on a charge of voluntary absence. You are listening to the Quad City Times on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. And we turn now to the obituaries of the pending. Um, we have Michael Mike Lee Swanson, 76, of East Moline, Linda K. Braman, 74, of Davenport, Brenda J. Poor, 73, of Moscow, Iowa, 
Melvin L. Carlton, 66, of Davenport, and Thomas R. Lanthiel, 79, of Rock Island. Our first obituary is Tom Balunas, 54, of Davenport, passed away Tuesday, February 20th, in his home. Tom was born August 1, 1969, uh, into George and Barbara Balunas in uh, Burvard, uh, County, Florida. Years after Tom was born, the family moved to the Quad Cities, where Tom attended school at Pleasant Valley, including Pleasant View Elementary, Black Hawk Junior High, and Pleasant Valley High. In 1987, Tom graduated from Pleasant Valley High School, where he excelled in football, basketball, and baseball. He went on to play football at St. Ambrose University, where he graduated with a degree in business administration and management in 1991 and was co-captain of university football and junior and senior class uh, president. His academic and sports experience earned him dual scholarships at St. Ambrose University. His social skills earned him appointment as resident hall assistant at St. Ambrose. Tom married Heather Ritter in 1993 and they had two children, Natalie and Casey. Tom and Heather divorced in 2011. Tom worked for several different pharmaceutical firms over the years, including Novo Nordisk, uh, Solutions Medical, and Physicians Toxicology. Additionally, Tom worked at Fiddler uh, Technologies and the last few years was a salesman for River City Pella. Tom joined the River City Pella family in March of 2020. Since Tom was there, he was the top producing retail sales rep. He was the first retail rep to ever sell more than $300,000 in a single month. He was a member of the Million Dollar Club each of the last four years, 2020 through 2023. He was a tireless worker and was dedicated to his customers and especially their dogs. Tom was an inspiration to all of our associates. He lived life to the fullest, said Tom's boss, Brian Purcell. Outside of work, Tom coached baseball for many years in Davenport. For many kids, Tom was the reason they started to play. In his free time, Tom enjoyed spending time with family, friends, watching sports, going to the gym, playing golf, and going to his favorite Quad City hotspots. Tom was known by friends to light up any room he walked into. He would always find ways to brighten your day or make you laugh, Brad Barton, longtime best friend, says. Every time I spoke to him on the phone or spent the day with him, our PV pep talk was today. It's going to be a great day. Today, effort, uh, total effort today. Tom is survived by his parents, George and Barbara Balonis of Ocean City, Maryland. His sister, Christine Clark of Maryland, his daughter, Natalie Balunas, uh, husband, Billy Comer of uh, Kiwani, uh, granddaughter, Bella Balunas, son, Casey Balunas uh, of Kiwani, and many longtime friends, including Brad Barton. He is preceded in death by his grandparents. 
A visitation will be held from 3 to 6 p.m. on Sunday, February 25, 2024, at the Rungi Mortuary. Services will be held at 10 o'clock a.m. on Monday, February 26th at the mortuary uh, uh, location. Memorials can be made to his family. Online condolences may be expressed at www.rungimortuary.com. Thank you, Jim. The next one we have is Joy Dean Franich. April 6, 1935 to February 21, 2024. Joy Dean Jody Franich, 88, of Davenport, Iowa, went peacefully to be with Jesus on Wednesday, February 21, 2024, surrounded by family. Visitation will be held from 4 to 7 p.m. Monday, February 26, 2024, at Gibson Bodie Funeral Home. 202 North Main in Port Byron, Illinois, with a rosary at 7 p.m. Mass at a mass of Christian burial will be held at 10.30 a.m. Tuesday at St. John's Catholic Church, 1416 3rd Avenue, Rapid City, Illinois. Memorials may be made to the Utah State Development Center Special Olympics Activities. Jody was born in April 6, 1935 in Shamrock, Texas, to Harry and Lola Barleen. Uh, she was married to Frank Franich for 16 years. She was a supply specialist for the U.S. Army Material Command Rock Island Arsenal for 18 years and six prior years with the U.S. Army. She is survived by sons Richard Franich, Rock Springs, Wyoming, Terry Franich, American Fork, Utah, Gregory Franich, Bettendorf, Iowa, and a daughter, Karen Franich, of Moline, Illinois. Eleven grandchildren, ten great-grandchildren, plus a brother, Paul Taylor, and a sister, LeVon Irving, both of Oklahoma. She was preceded in death by her parents, a grandson, Michael Beechler, East Moline, and Sherrod, Illinois, plus three brothers and two sisters. Jody was a member of two Lutheran churches in Davenport, Iowa. She was a founding member of the first chapter of the Associated of Association of Retarded Children in Las Cruces, New Mexico. She and her Beta Sigma Phi sorority sisters helped at Special Olympics and other charitable events for over 60 years. She was a member of Optimus Club in Bettendorf, Iowa, and she was an avid golfer. She enjoyed spending time with her family and friends, dancing, working crossword puzzles, plus playing board and handheld computer games. She enjoyed tending to her small flower and vegetable garden. And uh, Rodney J. Farrell, uh, 58, of Makokata, passed away at home on Tuesday, February 20th. Uh, Rodney Joe Farrell, was uh, born on April 20th, 1965, in Makokata, to Roger and Donna uh, Karstensen Furl. Most of his early education was in the Quad Cities, and he graduated from Grinnell High School. Following high school, he first worked for a hog farm in Grinnell for two years, and then raised harness horses for four years at the Quad City Downs. 
He then moved to Preston, Iowa, where he worked for Preston Meats and then for Makokota Livestock Barn for five years. Following a move to Cedar Rapids, where he worked construction, he returned home and worked for Steve Trincamp for several years. Lastly, he worked for Cornelius Land and Cattle for 28 years. He married Julie Trincamp in 1994 in Preston, Iowa. Three daughters were born to this union, Jeannie, Amber, and Carrie. Rod always loved listening to country music or old classic rock. He rode horses and hunted coyote and deer. He was always helping with the Jackson County Rodeo, spending time out in the country. And most importantly, he loved to spend time with his grandchildren. He would take them on four-wheeler rides, truck rides, and just sitting around and playing with them. Those left to honor his memory include children Jeannie Furrow of Lost Nation, uh, Iowa, Amber Furrow of Clinton, and Carrie Lovell of Bellevue. His father, Roger Furrow of Davenport, uh, a brother, Alan, spouse, Lori Furrow of Davenport, sister, Kathy Myers of Greatinger, seven grandchildren and his special family, uh, Rebecca Miller, Hope Glazer, Sabri Gregory, uh, Allie Cook, Kylie Stanton, Carly Stanton, Riley Fleming, uh, Hallie Foreman, Alex I, and Maddie Temple. Um, he was preceded in death by his mother, Donna Furrow. A gathering of family and friends celebrating his life will be held from 11 a.m. to 2 p.m. Sunday, March 3rd at the Timber Center in Makokota. Cremation rites have been accorded. The Carson Celebration of Life Center in Makokota is caring for the family. Online condolences may be left at www.carsonandson.com. Thanks, Jim. Now we have an opinion from our guest columnist, <laughs> Terry Masick. Uh, of Moline. How the COVID pandemic has changed us. The novel coronavirus, also known as SARS, COV-2, COVID-19, or simply COVID, entered our national consciousness in the early months of 2020. Since those early days of this pandemic, more than 100 million Americans have been infected, more than 1 million Americans have died, and countless numbers continue to suffer the chronic pain, intense fatigue, and brain fog from lingering condition known as long COVID. Since the onset of this new disease, vaccines have been created, distributed, and administered. Many of those who've had the condition have recovered and have developed the antibodies that give them a temporary immunity. Life for most of us, the survivors, has gone on. Masks are generally no longer worn. Were masks intended to protect us from others or protect others from us? Shortages of hand sanitizer and toilet paper are no longer a problem. Social distancing is no longer a behavior that's practiced. People are re returning to movie theaters, concert halls, fitness centers, and sports arenas. COVID has become more of something we're resigned to live with rather than something we hope not to die from. 
In some cases, however, COVID has had a more permanent effect on lives and behavior. I know of people who continue to avoid crowds to the point of not eating in restaurants, not going to movies, not attending church services, or not booking any kind of air travel. I've seen people wearing masks as they drove alone in their cars. Does this behavior guarantee their safety from airborne virus? Unless these people choose to live a hermit-like existence, they must still shop for groceries, see their doctors, and venture out into the larger world for some reason or other. The complete absence or exposure cannot be assured, and so we remain vulnerable to the many threats of disease out there that we must all live with. The onset of COVID has created at-home schoolrooms and workplaces. Some of these changes may prove to be beneficial, some may not. Looking back on education by Zoom, we've seen a decrease in academic test scores in math and reading. Students suffered from a lack of interpersonal socialization and interactive learning. Teachers had a harder time teaching under such conditions, and most instructors were pleased to see the return of traditional classroom learning at the strength of the pandemic decreased and the required lockdowns ended. Work from home appears to be more of a longer lasting change. Two thirds of white collar workers are now working from home, either exclusively or at least some of the time. Major cities have seen less traffic and public transportation use on Mondays and Fridays as a result. Visits to office buildings in this location has dropped 42% in the three year period from 2020 to 2023. A significant amount of office space in big cities continues to go unused. The expense of business trips has been reduced by the technology of teleconferencing, but the camaraderie, conversation, and communication that occurred around the company water cooler has been reduced or lost. Thanks to the availability of online medical help during the pandemic, one in four Americans continues to benefit from this program. More than 12% of adults receive mental health counseling via telehealth services. Online medical assistance has even been used by people seeking advice for their pets. Restaurant dining has changed significantly since the start of the pandemic. Inside visits to restaurants were 22% lower in February of 2023 than at the same time in 2020. Today, nearly 40% of all restaurant traffic is drive-through. In addition to COVID-related employees, employee illnesses and deaths, the virus has also triggered a wave of early retirements and resignations. In certain employment sectors, food service and healthcare, for example, staff shortages continue to persist due to the additional difficulty in recruiting and retaining qualified and reliable workers. The COVID pandemic has its share of believers and a great number of deniers. Some were thankful for the vaccines and were anxious to receive them. Others remain anti-vaxxers with no trust in the talking heads on TV. Self-imposed isolation agreed with some people and was difficult for others. Many continued to congregate in spite of the warnings from the Center of Disease Control. Some welcomed direction and others refused to be directed. Are there any truths to be learned from all this? As always, preventing a disease is better than struggling to overcome a disease. 
science quickly came to our rescue with the introduction of new vaccines. Risky behavior can have its consequences. Living with a reasonable level of caution is better than living an isolated life in fear. Good judgment should always be your guide, and never forget to appreciate the simple joy of just being alive. And uh, we'll turn to sports. Uh, some of the things you can um, uh, tune in to on television here. Um, auto racing uh, at 2 o'clock, the NASCAR Truck Series on FS1. And at uh, 4 o'clock, uh, the NASCAR Infinity Series uh, FS1. College baseball, we have a a game at 3 o'clock, Alabama State against Southern U uh, on Major League Baseball Network. And at 6.30, Grambling State plays Florida A&M. College basketball at 5 o'clock, Kent State at Akron. Toledo at Bowling Green uh, at uh, on ESPNU. Duquesne at 7.30 against Fordham on ESPN2. Uh, at 8 o'clock, Fairfield at Quinnipiac, uh, ESPNU. And at 9 o'clock, Nevada, Nevada at uh, San Jose State on FS1. One college women's basketball game on the Pac-12 Network, Colorado at USC. Uh, college women's gymnastics, the Big Ten Championships are on BTN uh, on, uh, at 5 o'clock. Horse racing, uh, we have America's Day at the Races at 2 o'clock on FS2. Uh, there's a baseball, Major League Baseball spring training game, uh, San Diego against the Dodgers at 2 o'clock on ESPN, and a couple of NBA games, uh, Cleveland at Philadelphia at 6.40 on ESPN, and then at 9.05, Milwaukee at Minnesota on ESPN. Um, we have a women's basketball article here uh, written by Michael Merritt of uh, AP um, who's, who writes about the Indiana-Iowa game last night. Indiana limits Clark in win. Indiana made Car Caitlin Clark fight for every point. The 14th-ranked Hoosiers relentlessly uh, physical defense uh, finally derailed the top women's basketball scorer in NCAA Basketball One history. <clears throat> a frustrated Clark endured a rare off night while Sarah Scalia scored 25 points and All-American center Mackenzie Holmes added 24 and 9 rebounds to lead Indiana past Iowa, number 4 Iowa, 86-69 uh, to 69 on Thursday night. I thought defensively we were just terrific, Indiana coach Terry Morin said. I think we made everything very difficult for Caitlin Clark tonight, and that's hard to do. She's a phenomenal player. Playing for the first time since she broke the NCAA women's career scoring record, Clark finished with 24 points, 10 assists, and 9 rebounds, but struggled from the field. She was 8 of 26 overall and 3 of 16 on three-pointers, while scoring just four points in the second half. Clark has 3,593 points and is 57 away from her next milestone, Lynette Woodard's major 
women's college scoring record with three games left in the regular season. Hawkeyes coach Lisa Bluter deflected, detected frustration from her star, who at one point was talking to the Indiana bench. Clark acknowledged how difficult it was to contend with the Hoosiers and their rotating defenders. I think being physical, face guarding me, throwing a lot of different people at me, yeah, just very physical, Clark said. They kind of pushed me off my spots, got me out a little deeper than I wanted to be. Indiana, the defending regular season Big Ten champion, had something to prove after Monday night's inexplicable uh, loss at Illinois and the Hoosiers, 22-4, and 13-3 in the conference, didn't disappoint. Yarden Garzon made three threes and finished with 15 points. And the Hoosiers were more than ready for Clark, just like last year. Uh, three hours before tip-off, long lines were snaking around assembly hall for what already had been announced as a uh, sellout. Inside the <clears throat> arena, Indiana t-shirts were the dominant fashion choice with a few black and gold number 22 jerseys sprinkled around. And after Clark put up a rare shot that missed everything in the first half, the crowd responded with chants of air ball. Clark's three threes gave her 143, breaking the single season Big Ten record she set last season with 140. But she couldn't outduel the nation's best shooting team. Credit for that goes to Indiana's defense. We knew she was going to get her 25, 30, 40 points, whatever, Holmes said. But we had a goal in mind, too, you know, make it an inefficient uh, 30, 40 points and to keep the others out of it. To be able to do that and just be locked into the game that we had in store, that was the biggest thing. Indiana closed the first half on a 12-6 run for a 44-33 halftime lead, then shut out Iowa for nearly the first four minutes of the second half as it extended the margin to 51-33. Iowa finally responded with a 9-2 spurt and cut the deficit to 62-54 after three. But Garzon opened the fourth quarter with two baskets and an assist to give the Hoosiers a 69-56 lead, and the Hawkeyes never recovered. Kate Martin had 19 points for Iowa. Thanks, Jim, for that story. I was a little shocked when I saw the score last night on the news because I just always expect Iowa to win. So, Our last story is college football cyclones promote waters. Jake Waters has been promoted to Iowa State running backs coach after working as a senior offensive quality control staff member for the past three years. Cyclones coach Matt Campbell announced Thursday. Waters, an ISU graduate assistant in 2017, coached tight ends, um, wide receivers, and fullbacks at UTEP over three seasons before he returned to Ames in 2021. Jake is a valuable and talented member of our coaching staff and we're excited to see him in this new role, Campbell said. He has earned this opportunity because of his hard work and the impact he's made during his four seasons with the program. His experience on our staff will make this a seamless transition for him and our team as he moves into this position. Waters was National Junior College Offensive Player of the Year for Iowa Western Community College in 2012 and a two-year starting quarterback at Kansas State. 
Well, that brings us to the end of the Quad City Times for today. I'm John McPartland, and my partner at the microphone has been Jim Hoffman. You can listen to IRIS programs on any computer or smart device at any time at iowaradioreading.org. Thank you for listening to IRIS, Iowa's first and only radio reading service.